stop trying to understand it. It's not something that you can understand with your head. It's something that you intuit. Mysticism is, it's a, it's a spiritual education, but in terms of, it's, it's interesting to study it in an academic setting because it's sort of the opposite of that, right? And any mystic like Rumi would certainly encourage people uh, and did, you know, to, to study and learn. He has a, he talks a lot about wings and there's a poem in which he says that uh, facts have two wings, opinions have one, right? Like facts can fly, opinions not as much. But in terms of understanding mysticism, it's not something to be understood, it's something to be felt. Um, so I think in the realm uh, of academics, it's not necessarily the place to find it. I think even as a writer, this is hard for me to say, that even through words, words really get in the way. Things like music, uh, visual art, things that can be absorbed without having to engage with your left brain, <laughs> but um, more more the right brain and not so much the brain at all, but what Rumi would call the heart. Welcome back to the Array of Faith podcast. I'm Jay Dana Trent, your host, and I am joined here by our producer, Gauravani Das. Welcome back to our final episode of season two, episode four with Melody Moisey. We are so happy Melody is with us here tonight. Melody is, is an Iranian-American Muslim author, attorney, activist, and visiting professor of creative nonfiction at UNCW. Her latest book is The Rumi Prescription, How an Ancient Mystic Poet Changed My Modern Manic Life, and it has been called a heartening narrative of family, transformation, and courage that could shatter a variety of prejudices and stereotypes. Melody is also the author of Haldol and Hyacinth, A Bipolar Life, and War on Error, Real Stories of American Muslims. Her essays have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, The Guardian, and a myriad of other outlets. She's also appeared as a TV and radio commentator on NPR, CNN, BBC, PBS, and among other channels. She is a graduate of Wesleyan University and Emory University School of Law and School of Public Health. Students, you can follow her on Twitter at Melody Moisey and on Instagram at Melody.Moisey. Melody, welcome to Array of Faith. We are so glad you're here. Thanks so much for having me, Dana. I'm delighted to be here. Oh my goodness. It is such an honor. You, you are our first celebrity guest. And so, <laughs> so it's awesome. We're so excited. And the students are thrilled and excited. And oh my goodness, I just can't say enough. They, they have heard me talk about the roomy prescription for an entire year. And so <laughs> they're going to be really, really stoked to hear your answers to these questions and to hear your perspective because they so enjoy your work and your words and the way that you have brought Rumi into their lives. So thank you so much for that. Thank you, Dana. That means a lot coming from you as a writer as well. So thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Well, the students know a bit about your background, but our, our goal this season is to kind of look at things a little bit differently. We're looking at where we've come from, where we are, and where we're going. And our Introduction to World Religion students have a really good solid foundation. And so we're digging deeper this semester. And we're going to start with, with where you are currently in terms of describe your current spiritual and religious perspective and your 
current practice? Mm. Um, so my current practice, it's, um, this is being recorded in January or what, February now, 2021. <laughs> um, my current practice is survival. Uh, my general practice in terms of religious practice is writing. I, the way I practice is through my writing um, and through my activism. So the concept of jihad is very, uh, is very, it's very central to my practice uh, of Islam. So for those who may be less familiar, jihad is this notion of struggle uh, to find justice in the world um, and also within your own soul. Uh, and these are two sides uh, to me of the same coin. So the more you struggle for justice in the world, uh, the more you improve your own soul and the more you improve your own soul, uh, the better the world becomes because you're part of it. So uh, that it's right now, uh, when I say my practice is survival, it's just, I think in this moment right now, the expectation has to be <laughs> pretty low. Uh, for me to be just managing. Um, and I'm still here. So I've managed so far. We are so glad you're still here. And I know that our <laughs> students will will resonate with that, yeah. with with just daily survival, because there are there are so many plates spinning in the air um, for them and for you and for all of us. And so I really hear that survival as a spiritual practice. And I would love to dig a little bit deeper because we talk a lot about jihad in, in REL 110 and the misconceptions about jihad and what, what the, that the spiritual struggle is, is more important than the physical struggle, right? In terms of really doing the hard work of improving the world. And you said on a justice level, on an activist level, but to do the internal work to do that. So in your daily life, what, what are some specific examples of of jihad, of what you're you're doing on in a on a daily basis to survive, and to participate in in spiritual jihad. Mm. Um, so one of the big ones is is patience. The things that I'm bad at, the things that I'm worst at, uh, I would say, is would be patience. <laughs> I'm, I'm deeply impatient. Uh, I'm very good at anger. I'm not incredibly good at love by itself. Um, I've recognized over time that anger has actually fueled my entire career. Um, and only recently with writing my latest book, The Rumi Prescription, did I realize, and I mean, I eventually had a psychotic break, which I, which I don't recommend. Uh, but I do think it, which is, you know, partly due to the fact that I have bipolar disorder and that's a whole different can of bananas. Uh, but that, that whole experience, uh, made me aware of the fact that I was carrying, carrying around all this anger, uh, I think helped precipitate that. I'm not saying it was the sole cause because I understand that bipolar is a clinical condition. Obviously I had a genetic predisposition, predisposition and all of that. Uh, but I also think there was something about carrying around all that anger for so long and letting it fuel me for so long. Um, and part of writing a Rumi prescription and the journey that was that book, uh, and continues to be my life after writing it, uh, is recognizing, um, that constant sort of spiritual struggle for me personally, uh, to be led by love instead of anger. So instead of being led purely out of anger for 
my oppressors and the oppressors of my friends and family, uh, I am now trying as hard as I can to be led by love for my friends, uh, which is a lot less toxic. Uh, so that's been part of my jihad is just moving from anger to love. Uh, not to say that anger isn't useful because obviously it's been incredibly useful to me, uh, but recognizing I'm good at anger. I've always been good at anger. I wake up every morning pissed about the state of the world. So I don't, I don't have to work on that. And there are people who do need to work on that. Uh, I'm just not one of them. I do need to work on love. I do like, that is something uh, that is hard for me and has been hard for me uh, for a long time. And same with patients. And I think they're all related as well. So I hope that answers, answers the question. It does. Absolutely. And anger, anger is an important spiritual tool, just like you said, because um, a lot, a lot can, a lot of good can come out of anger, um, a lot of change, a lot of justice, and there's always pain behind anger, right? So looking for the pain points and for our students, they've sat with a lot of pain and a lot of anger this year. And so I think hearing from you that you also have those struggles with all the tools that you have in your toolbox, um, that will really help them take a deep breath and also move towards love and what we learn in the, in the virtual classroom now, empathy, mm -hmm. you know, empathy. Um, but it's hard. Oh my goodness. It's hard. Um, especially right now. And so thinking about, I love the spiritual practice of patience, right? <laughs> Being patient with ourselves and, and our process. And so, and that leads me into our next question because you've already named some beautiful themes that have contributed to, to your faith. They have shaped your faith. Um, how have other themes of identity, community, heritage, sacred texts, history, culture, and life experiences, can you describe for us how, how the, that trajectory, maybe several themes along that trajectory, have also shaped your faith in terms of where you are right now? Mm. Um, so being an Iranian-American has certainly played a part in that. Um, as has living, as I mentioned, with bipolar disorder and having a mental health condition, uh, which in my case also included a mystical experience, uh, two technically mystical experiences. Uh, I feel like one is more than enough. I'm not looking for any more, uh, but I do feel really grateful for that uh, side of my identity because uh, is painful as, as it has been and ha as difficult as it has, has been and continues to be uh, to deal with a condition like that, that I consider that is a spiritual condition and also a, a mental health condition, a psychiatric and medical condition that requires medication. Um, being able to square those two things in a society that refuses to allow that, that insists that either something is mystical or clinical and it can't be both. Uh, so part of my journey has been being able to say garbage, like, no, it can be both. And it has been both in my experience. Uh, for years, I threw away the mystical side of my manic experiences uh, because of the fact that I thought it was unhealthy. And I thought, and I was told by healthcare providers that this is not, uh, this is all illness, you know, uh, this, that wonderful mystical experience you had was just a delusion. Uh, and I, I knew better than to believe it, but at the same time, 
I'm not like a super woo woo kind of person. I believe in medicine and science and evolution. And like, I'm, there's not, like, I am the least woo woo person to write a book like this possibly ever. I am deeply cynical about a lot of things. Uh, but that's partly why someone like for me having a mystical experience like I did and being feeling so deeply connected to every other living thing and really getting on a spiritual level that had nothing to do with reason and intellect um, that we are all connected and not just like as human beings, but just every living thing is connected on this planet and beyond uh, through something greater than ourselves that is the same at its very heart and at its very heart is love. Uh, was ah, something I absolutely needed and I'm, I'm so grateful for. Uh, but I've found that every part, uh, every wonderful blessing like that that has come with me has not come uh, without another side to it. You know, Rumi has a, a poem that I translate as seek the tonic nectar in the bitter sting, go to the source of the source of your spring. Um, the more literal translation is go to the root of the root of yourself. And the, the tonic nectar and the bitter sting is Rumi sees that there is um, anything that is nourishing also has another side to it. And in Farsi, it's really cool in terms of the poetry because it's the nourishment is noosh and the sting or even poison uh, is, is niche. So every noosh has a niche and vice versa. Um, and in my experience, it's absolutely been that. So it's great because every time that I experience something that's painful or a niche, a sting of some sort, I know that there's also some something to learn there. There's also something that can nourish me um, if, you know, if I seek it. But at the same time, every time I find something incredibly nourishing, I know there's something underlying it there uh, that also has something to teach me that uh, is painful. So beautifully said. Wow. And our students really, they, they struggle with mysticism because many of our students struggle to understand it, um, struggle to learn about it. Because when you're reading a world religions textbook, yes, there's mysticism within the textbook, but mysticism is sort of considered like sort of outside the box of the academic study of religion in terms of doctrine and dogma. And so I'd love to just sort of go off on a deer trail really quickly. What advice, wisdom do you have for students who who are seeking to understand mysticism, how, how to define it and what it feels like, because many of our students have had mystical experiences as well. Mm, stop trying to understand it. It's not something that you can understand with your head. It's something that you intuit. Um, it's mysticism is the opposite of, of edge. I mean, it's a, it's a spiritual education, but in terms of it's, it's interesting to study it in an academic setting because it's sort of the opposite of that, right? And any mystic like Rumi would certainly encourage people uh, and did, you know, to, to study and learn. He, has a, he talks a lot about wings and there's a poem in which he says that uh, facts have two wings, opinions have one. <laughs> right? Like facts can fly, opinions not as much. Uh, so he's also quite, way less woo-woo than I think people think he is as well, but that's also my bias. But in terms of understanding mysticism, it's not something to be understood, it's something to be felt. Um, so I think in the realm uh, of academics is not necessarily the place to find it. I think even as a writer, this is hard for me to say, that even through words, words really get in the way uh, that I think things like music, 
uh, visual art, things that can be absorbed without having to engage with, um, I guess, your left brain, <laughs> but um, more, more the right brain and not so much the brain at all, but what Rumi would call the heart. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. Students really sit with that. That's, man, that's going to be so, so helpful. Um, and many of our students have, have felt that. And, and I really, I, I, I needed to hear those words too, <laughs> to stop seeking to understand it, but to just, just be in it. And so, and your book has done that for me. I mean, it really has over and over Thank and you. over, you know, it's been a touchstone for me this past year and, and into 21. And so I'm, I'm grateful. And, and I also know too, that your experience of Islam is very different from our other guest practitioners, from other Muslims that our students know from their own experience of Islam. Mm -hmm. It's, it's very, it's very different in a beautiful way. And I think that's what makes part of it, your experience and your book and you so special. And so what I'd love to ask as our wrap up question is how is your faith journey different from your ancestors and peers and how might it also be similar? Mm. So, you know, my, from my ancestors as Iranians who, you know, being Persian for way, way back, my parents did their genetic something there. I told them not to, I don't want to be in any database, but they, they did it. They, they had, um, I guess, what is it? some sort of, they did a swab and to tell us where we're from. And it's like almost all Persian, um, some Turkish and some uh, West African, like just a tiny amount of both of those, but mostly very, very Persian. And in that background, that means that we were originally, if anything, Zoroastrian. Um, maybe we became Jewish before we became uh, Muslim. Like, I don't know, but we've been Muslim for a long time. Uh, so that, that's where my ancestry comes from and not just Muslim, but Shia Muslim and 12 are Shia Muslim, which is a whole different animal uh, on top of that. So that experience um, of coming from this very specific version of Islam that is not, that is influenced deeply by Zoroastrianism. Um, for instance, you know, I, I don't, we don't celebrate Muslims in Iran even, you know, our biggest, most important holiday is coming up and it's the Persian New Year. And that is not the Islamic New Year. Those are two different things. And the Persian New Year comes out of Zoroastrian traditions and the vernal equinox. And it makes, the Persian New Year makes sense. It's the 20th of March, the first day of spring. So things are growing and um, makes a whole lot more sense than the Gregorian one. Not that I'm at all biased about that, but um, in terms of my journey being different from my uh, Muslim Shia Iranian ancestors, I came to Islam as an American too, and they didn't, you know, so I, and I came very much um, through the autobiography of Malcolm X. That was what really convinced me that Islam was for me. Um, and I, for them, that, that was not, and, and Malcolm X is a big deal uh, in Iran as well, but, you know, before him, uh, their influences were, uh, different, right? So, and, and not, it just doesn't have the same influence and impact. So for me as an American, that his life story really spoke to me in a way that, um, and his conversion, particularly in the reasonings behind his conversion, 
uh, just made so much sense to me in terms of coming back to the Islam that made the most sense to me and that I could understand as an American. So that really is different than um, my ancestors in Iran uh, who don't have also that American side to them. And I forget what the second part of that question was. Um, it's just, um, gosh, you did a great job explaining <laughs> that. And, and our students will resonate with that too. Um, for a lot of different reasons, but the, so your ancestors, but also your peers, how does your, how does your faith, religion, spirituality, mysticism differ from, um, or in mm. similar to, to your peers, your current peers, your colleagues? Yeah, I think very, it, it, it's closer to my peers, I guess. Um, but it's also who you choose as your peers, right? So I have my, my group of fellow Muslims is a group of incredibly progressive uh, which I think is inherent to Islam. I don't think you need to say progressive Muslim because Islam is a very progressive faith. Um, literally in a lot of ways, there, there would be no Islam if there weren't Judaism and Christianity. It comes after those two faiths. Um, so it is in that sense progressive and it's also progressive uh, in its understanding of justice. Um, and so, so that I, I relate a lot I think to my peers in the progressive Muslim movement that said, either, I mean, I have plenty of peers uh, who are more orthodox um, and I don't, you know, orthodoxy never attracted me or made sense to me in any way. Um, and it, partly that's growing up with Rumi as my primary like spiritual educator through my father. Um, that's not gonna, you know, his, his whole philosophy is, um, you know, love's nation of origin is separate from all creeds and for the lovers, the beloved comprises all religions and nationalities. So that even the idea of just separating out religions is kind of, you know, I can see Rumi laughing at that at the same time as, you know, his, his philosophy is so deeply entrenched uh, in, within Islam, but Islam is a faith that accepts other faiths, that it's very particular that it does that. It's not an evangelical faith. Um, and there, you know, there's a reason that people who go to prison convert to Islam. Um, it's not a, a faith that people convert to. It's not like Scientology. Like people don't like make a ton of money and then decide to convert to Islam. Um, it's it's something you come to uh, at your lowest, I guess. I, I mean, it, and it appeals to people. Um, this is a religion that was founded uh, with slaves, you know, so like this is a religion that would appeal to people uh, who have a history in that as well. So, so yeah, I, I hope that answers the question and doesn't get too far off topic. No, it does. It does. And it actually comes full circle too when thinking about justice as well, mm -hmm. like going right back to the beginning as a justice as a spiritual practice. It makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Thank you. There Thank was so you. much in there. And I know Gorvani has a, Brad has a follow up question. Melody, yeah, I wanted to ask you a little bit more um, about what you said about making a shift in perspective and, and, and instead of acting out of anger, acting from a place of love. And I was hoping um, if, if you felt comfortable doing this to talk about what that looks like for you, either in a general way or a specific way. And, and I asked because I think this is just really important to spiritual practice and the students would benefit from hearing from you. What, what that looks like kind of on a daily basis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that question. And I'll, I'll go very specific um, 
it's very hard for me to like, I don't see politics as being separate from myself because my identity is based in that. Like, and I think everyone's is, whether you recognize it or not, but as somebody who was born the year of the so-called Islamic revolution um, and who would, if it weren't for the CIA sponsored coup in 1953, there would have been in Iran, there would have been no Islamic revolution. And if there weren't a revolution, I wouldn't have, there wouldn't have been an Iran Iraq war. And I never would have come to America and I never would have learned English probably, you know, like I wouldn't be talking to you at this point. So to pretend that like politics has nothing to do with who I am is, is deeply impossible. Cause I, I would be living on a different continent if, if, if politics had nothing to do with who I am. Um, so getting to the specific of that, uh, I've, the hardest thing for me to deal with uh, in my life thus far in terms of more politically has been the past four years uh, and living in an environment where, you know, I thought after 9-11, that was the worst it would ever get. Uh, but then living where Muslims were banned specifically from Iran, that my family couldn't come visit, that in this country where I had studied the laws and I, I knew, you know, as a lawyer, I know that that's unconstitutional, but the Supreme Court didn't agree with me. Um, at least the majority of the Supreme Court didn't agree with me on that, uh, was devastating. So the, the anger that I felt during the Trump administration toward um, him specifically and that whole administration and what they had done to us because every word that came out of that man's mouth every and there's so much data to show this that every time he would say some islamophobic garbage that the number of anti-muslim hate crimes would rise significantly people would die and that i mean that to me was devastating and so upsetting that a man like that could have that much power uh over other people and control how they decided to treat me um, and people who shared my faith was just evoked so much anger in me. Uh, and I realized that like, in a sense, if I just let that lead me, it, it would crush me. And I was so glad that I, you know, by the time that Donald Trump came into office, I'd been studying Rumi for a while, thank God. Uh, so I was prepared for it in a way that the anger didn't crush me and it didn't ruin me um, in a way that I think it could have for sure. But to lead with love for, you know, um, to realize my community is broader than just, you know, Muslim, Iranian, American, bipolar women, you know, <laughs> obviously I can't have that tiny community. I have a huge community of people uh, who also, who don't share my identity, but also shared a sense of persecution under that administration. So, you know, my LGBTQ uh, siblings um, and how they were being per persecuted within the trans community. I was seeing all these parallels of what was happening um, to other minoritized communities uh, that I, you know, I, I had so many people, there were so many of us who were being just really devastated by that administration. I think what happened was I was able to say, okay, well, what can I do for the Black Lives Matter movement? What can I do for, um, the gay rights movement, the trans rights movement, like those movements became part of my struggle in a way that, you know, they'd always been uh, because as a Muslim, and I wanna say as a Muslim, not in spite of being a Muslim, um, those have been important human rights struggles for me that are part of my practice of jihad. Uh, so living through that four years was something that I'm, deeply grateful that I had this new perspective on. And the way that I kept going back to it was looking at my friends 
and just saying, I'm doing this out of love for my friends and for myself and for my own uh, culture and background and history uh, and not out of hatred for him because I had to accept that even Donald Trump, even Donald Trump has, has everyone, every single person has a divine spark within them. Um, you know, it can be clouded with a lot of other things. And, um, and for a lot of us, it is. And for me, it has been as well, you know, so I can't pretend that I'm, you know, there's no evil within me, just that I, like, I can't pretend there's no divinity within him. Uh, and being able to accept that is still something I struggle with, but I, I, I know that it, I know that it's true. Um, I just, being able to shift my focus as much as I know that it's true, it's hard for me to still focus on loving Donald Trump. So shifting my focus on the people I actually do love and saying, okay, well, if he's oppressing me and these other people, then I can work against that oppression out of love for the oppressed instead of out of hatred for this one oppressor who is just, you know, a symbol more than a, a specific human being. Cause I, I think that's ultimately what he ended up being. Oh, that's very well yeah, said. Thank you, Melody. Yeah. Thank you. And that gives our students to some tangible steps forward as well. Looking at love, empathy as a spiritual practice, working, working on justice, um, staying close to friends, working on behalf of friends in various communities. You've really tied all of that together beautifully. No surprise at all. Thank you. Um, and I know uh, that's, that that means a lot to our students because it's it's been a it's been an ongoing challenge you know for yeah. for for all of us yeah. for a long time and I also really appreciate your naming the divine spark in everyone mm-hmm. um, because at the end of the day like that that is also the essence of of um, spirituality of religion yeah. of that beautiful quote that you shared from Rumi that I I posted on Instagram too I um, <laughs> reposted that tonight because it's just such a lovely so the students will point oh, you to really? that yes. <laughs> And, um, you know, that, that we all have a divine spark. And I think that's, um, that is a lifelong lesson (laughs) for all of us. And I'm hopeful that our our little introduction to world religions class is, is helping students see the spark in one another and the spark in even those whom, with whom they disagree and those, um, those who oppress them and those who do not act justly towards them. Mm. So, wow. But it's a, it's a calling, right? I mean, it's a, I mean, going back to Malcolm X, going back to Jihad, I mean, it's, it's a calling to lean into and it's mystical. Therefore it's Mm. hard to understand, right? Absolutely. Cerebrally at least. Yeah. Yes. For sure. For sure. Oh my goodness. And, you know, we always end with parting words for our students. And I feel like I, I'm being called to ask you for those parting words for this season. Oh, yeah. When we bring practitioners into the classroom, we ask them to offer the students a few words of advice for their journey forward in religion, spirituality, you know, whatever path they are treading. So what would be your wisdom for them as they keep moving and stepping in this path? Um, so you were, you gave me a kind introduction and I, I really appreciate it. And I, it's funny, sometimes I hear people introduce me and I'm like, who is that person that you're, uh, introducing? Uh, I don't, I don't recognize her. I don't know who you're talking about, but I, I gen, you know, all the publications and stuff like that. Um, it's, 
I, and this is what I want to say to your students is my greatest success in all of that, um, professionally and spiritually, because those things are deeply connected for me has been not killing myself. Um, I struggle with suicidality and I have for a very long time. I have not overcome it. It's something I deal with regularly. Um, because I'm older, I, my prefrontal cortex has developed in a way that I'm no longer as impulsive as I used to be. Uh, thank God I'm able to step back in a way I wasn't before. And I worry about this younger generation experiencing this pandemic and being like, well, maybe this is how our future is going to be. Like maybe the world is like this now um, because they, they maybe haven't seen uh, something different and they've, they've struggled so much. It's just been such a difficult era. Uh, and when I, this comes back to what I was saying at the beginning in terms of my spiritual practice being survival, uh, just because, you know, you write a book about mysticism and you're influenced by Rumi, it doesn't mean that you don't struggle. You know, it, it, in fact, that's why I turned to Rumi, right? Because I struggle with these sorts of things. Um, and that is something that I'm very upfront with and I, and I want to talk about. And the reason that I bring it up, uh, it may not seem like an incredibly optimistic message to be giving, but I, I, I think it is. For me, I needed to hear somebody say that. And I, I attempted suicide while I was in law school. Um, and I needed to hear somebody tell me that I wasn't the only one who was thinking these things and that there was a way out and there was a way through it. Um, and that it just surviving for years at a time was absolutely what I needed to do. And that was enough. And that was a huge success because, and I still to this day say that that was, that has been my greatest success thus far as somebody who's attempted suicide in the past uh, is not doing it again. Um, and actively recognizing that I, it's okay to live my life for other people for certain percentages of my life. I don't need to be living for just myself. Um, if I'm not happy, if things are, you know, emotionally, mentally, psychologically in my brain, not working out, um, it's enough to say, you know, I have a husband who loves me. I have parents who love me uh, and they would be devastated if I wasn't here and I'm going to live for them today and tomorrow and next week. And eventually I'll be able to live for myself again. And that's fine. Um, and I, I know for everyone that logic is different, but for me, that log logic has saved me. Uh, so many times when I've been like, God, this sucks. You know, I, I can't, I can't take it anymore. And I'm like, okay, well you can't, but you would do it for your parents. You would do it for your husband. Uh, so just stick around because ultimately all for me, just sticking around has been the thing that has allowed me to grow spiritually, to grow professionally, to do all the things that I've done. And it's, and I think people don't address how hard it is for some of us, you know, people like me, people who are dealing with psychiatric conditions like that, um, up to 25% of people with my condition lose their lives to suicide. So it's, it's a real, real risk and I'm very aware of it. So, so I, that is the message I want to leave them with is that, uh, not killing yourself is, is amazing. It is congratulations. If you live through, especially this year, um, and, and just stick around and accomplish nothing else, but sticking around then bravo to you. Oh my gosh. Students, I want you to play that and replay it and play it again and play it again. I'm holding my hands at my heart center and they're cupped oh. open to receive that um, on behalf of all of your students and my students. 
because you and I both know as, as professors that what you have just named for them is very, very real. And what you've just named for yourself. Yeah. Thank you. Oh my gosh. You have given us a gift, a gift. Thank you. Thank you for reminding us. Thank you for reminding us that it's important to stick around for a myriad of reasons and that we can do it day. Yeah. Day by day, hour day by, by hour. Day. Yes, you yes. can just keep sticking around. Yeah, oh, you Melody, you are such a gift. Oh my goodness. Um, I feel the same way about you, Dana. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And thank you so much for what you do for all your students. Thank you. Well, they are my life. They are why I <laughs> stick around. Yeah. Fred, oh. the cats and the students. <laughs> they. <laughs> that, that's why I'm still here for sure. So Oh, goodness. Thank you so much. This is a wonderful ending to season two. We have all been inspired and we're so grateful to our guest, Melody Moisey. And students, we will see you next semester on season three of Array of Faith. Meanwhile, be good to one another and love one another.